The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John chapter 12, taking a little break from Ephesians just to look at Palm Sunday as well as Easter uh, next week together. But if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you there. You can take that. And go ahead and go to John 12. John is in the New Testament. John chapter 12, verses, our focus today is going to be verse 20 through 23. Really, mostly just 23 uh, together. When you look at John's gospel, what actually had just took place, if you go ahead and look back a little bit, you'll see in verse 12 is where John records the triumphal entry. And so where we come this morning, we don't know if it's actually chronologically right after the triumphal entry. John doesn't seem to care too much about that when he is writing as the other gospel writers do. But we do believe it's after the triumphal entry there. Uh, I didn't want to focus too much on the triumphal entry in this morning, although that's what we celebrate and look at. Uh, but this is happening after that. It's happening during Holy Week there. And I, I want to point out something to you. So the triumphal entry has happened. Everybody's all excited. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. You know, they're, they're throwing the palm branches down, throwing their clothes down on the ground as Jesus is, is riding into Jerusalem there. But there is a group that's not very excited about what's happening. And we see this in verse 19 of chapter 12. It says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So the Pharisees have been troubled by Jesus for a while, and they're very troubled at this point as he is riding into Jerusalem. They're talking to each other, and they're basically saying, no matter what we've tried isn't working. Look, he's gaining the world. He is gaining everything here, right, is happening. And so I point that out because it'll, it'll come up here in a moment. But you have to wonder, I don't know if you do this, I, I do this, you know, you try to insert yourself in the story, try to think what were they thinking, how are they doing, and trying to put yourself into thinking about what was going on with Jesus at this moment, because I think for most of us, if we're riding into town on a donkey and everybody is coming and saying, Hosanna and throwing stuff down, we would feel pretty good about ourselves at that moment. We would think, you know, everything I've been doing in my life has led to this moment, and this is a good, this is a good thing, or everything I've done has been right up until this moment. See, it's all culminating now, and we would have this excitement. And I really do try to think of where would Jesus be in this moment? I, I think there's no doubt there is some joy and happiness in what is taking place, but trying to understand what he's riding into and what he is going into, knowing that in just a few days, the cross awaited him. You know, pomp and circumstances is great, but maybe you've been in a position before where, I don't know, maybe you're at a birthday party and it's joyful, but all you can think about is the fact that you have surgery in two days. And it's a big one. And so while everybody is so excited and Maybe you should be too, and you are. You're, you're trying to be. You are excited for what's happening, but yet you're thinking about what is coming. I would have to think that in Christ's humanity, that's, 
That's where he's sitting at this moment. That the cross, the shadow of the cross, he's about to enter. Where before maybe it was in the future still, now he can, he can see it. it. It's coming. It is there. And so it's interesting to see these words after that John would do purposefully, very purposefully, as we look at verses 20 through 23 uh, together to see what Jesus would say. So follow along with me, just, just verse 20 through 23. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, it might seem like an odd place to stop, and I would say that too, because really my intention was to preach uh, all the way down to 36. But I found myself enamored with verse 23, and we'll get there very shortly. But it's interesting to know how verses 19 and how verses 20 really parallel each other. And John does this on purpose. And so I want us to catch this, because in verses 20 through 22, we see kind of an interesting thing happen that we don't you might say, why is this being told? Why is this important that some Greeks come, they go to Philip and say, we'd like to see Jesus. Philip doesn't have the gumption to go to Jesus himself, it seems. He goes to Andrew next, and then the two of them go to Jesus and and bring the Greeks to Jesus. We never see a question. We never even really see an interaction. And so it seems weird that this would maybe be here. But I, I think John wants us to see something that is taking place Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as really he's the king of the Jews. He has come, uh, you know, he's, he's Jewish. He, that's, that's what he is. And he is, he's riding into town as savior and Messiah. And people are even claiming that for him. But yet the people who represent the Jewish people, the Pharisees, the religious side of the Jewish people are the, are the Pharisees. And they, they represent, you could think in this passage, all of Jewish religion and faith. And their argument when it comes to Jesus in verse 19 is he's gaining the world and this is a problem. We have to do something about it. But then when we get to verse 20, we have these Greeks who represent the world flocking to him, doing whatever they can to just have a moment with Jesus because they recognize something in this Jesus that the Jewish people are not recognizing, that the Jewish authorities are pushing aside, but yet the world is coming to him. And it is interesting when you read uh, the commentaries. I think they like to add some stuff sometimes, which I understand. I'm sure I do the, the same thing. Some commentaries here try to say that in this moment, when, the Greek, when these Greeks come to him at this moment in Jesus' humanity, a light clicks and says, now is the time which is why he says what he says. I don't personally think that is the case. I think Jesus knew before this has happened. But it is telling to think about what we had talked about last week, if you remember, that the mystery that was being revealed was that God was assembling to himself not just Jew, but Gentile as well, that they were coming together under the banner of Christ. And this is what is taking place here in this passage, the Gentiles are coming to Jesus 
wanting to have a part of him, wanting, wanting to know more about him. But the picture that we have is the, the Jewish people pushing him aside, even though he's come to save them of their sins. And so I think that this parallel is important for us to notice because we do have this picture of the mystery being wrapped up in just a couple of verses in John as well. That it's not just for the Jewish people any longer. That what Jesus is about to do is he is entering into Jerusalem as Holy Week is about to take place and the cross is looming very large. What Jesus is doing is he is actually assembling together his church that'll be through him. And it's not about race or creed or money or anything like that. It's, it's who can be found in him as a descendant of Abraham, not through flesh, but as a descendant of Abraham through faith, as we would read in Romans together. And that's what's happening at this moment in John chapter 12, verse 19, all the way down to verse 22. Now you'll notice that we don't see that the Greeks who go to Jesus say, hey, we have a question for Jesus. They just go to Philip and they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. I would assume that means they want to talk to him. Maybe they have some questions. I don't know, really. And we could throw whatever we want in there. But when we get to verse 23, there's not an interaction that maybe we think might take place. I, I guess I can't say what I was about to say. Today, normally, when you go and greet somebody, there's like a handshake, which doesn't happen anymore, which, to be honest, I'm not too sad about losing that part of it. Um, <clears throat> but that's what it was before, right? You shake hands, a little greeting. How are you doing? Good. Oh, you know, Philip and Andrew here said you wanted to see me. What, what, what did you need? You know, what did you want? I mean, that's the courteous thing that we would expect Jesus to do, but we don't have any sort of interaction. We're not told of anything like that. It, it, what it comes across as, I don't know if this is exactly how it went, but what it comes across as is Philip and Andrew go up to Jesus, hey, there's some Greeks here who want to see you. And as Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he goes off and keeps talking. No interaction, it seems, with the Greeks. No questions. We see questions later, which we'll talk about, but none of that. And like I told you, I really wanted to preach all the way down to verse 36, but I just kept getting stuck on verse 23, thinking about that sentence that Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And hopefully I can bring you into my mind a little bit of why I was stuck on that and break it down. Jesus first says, the hour has come. And this really is why I wanted to focus on Palm Sunday and going to the triumphal entry because this is a very important time in history of the triumphal entry and now Jesus saying this. Because if you look in the Gospel of John, there's times when Jesus talked about the hour to come, but it was never time. Actually, four instances in the Gospel of John before this, people would come to Jesus and Jesus' response would be, the hour has not yet come. And so the disciples probably had got accustomed to hearing that. The hour has not yet come. In John chapter 2, you might remember, it's when really Jesus kind of begins his ministry at the wedding of Cana and Galilee. And they run out of wine and Jesus, uh, you know, is there at the, at the party. And his mother, like mothers do, cause a scene and want to interrupt everything and say, well, my child can solve all the problems. Just go to him. But you remember the response of Jesus to his own mother. 
My hour has not yet come. In John chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, it says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his, his mom's response is kind of interesting. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Which they should respond, you're not doing what he told you. But it's because Jesus isn't talking here about my hour hasn't come for time to do miracles. That's not the point. And we'll talk more about that too. But he says, my hour has not yet come. Well, then later in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, it says this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now I could stop there and talk about the marketing and stuff I talked about last week. We could pull some truths from that, from this, but I don't want to do that this morning. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So again, the people around him are saying, this stuff that you are telling us is, is groundbreaking. It is, it is earth shattering. You need to go and let people know. Now's a good time. The Feast of Booths, is going to be a lot of people there. Go and let them know. And he says, my time isn't yet come. My time has not yet come. Well, then later in chapter 7, Jesus actually goes to the Feast of Booths. He ends up, up going. And so in verses 25 through 30, this happens again. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so now at this moment, they want to arrest him. They want to seek after, after him, but yet something is causing them not to be able to do this. And the reason is the hour had not yet come. It, it wasn't time for him to die. It wasn't, it wasn't time for him to be crucified. Well, there's one more case of this in John chapter 8, verse 20. He's in the treasury and he's talking with the Pharisees who want him dead. And in John chapter 8, verse 20, it says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so think about this as a reader of a book. Okay, if you're not one who cheats and looks at the back, I got to know what happens because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be frustrated. I don't know. I got to know what happens. If you're not one of those people and you're reading through the gospel of John and you're 
you're going through this, and again and again it's repeatedly saying, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come. And then you come to chapter 12, verse 23, and all of a sudden the main character says, the hour has come. Oh, it's getting good. That, that's where you get. Oh, okay, it's about to happen. All the preliminary stuff is done. I don't have to wade through that anymore. Now's the fight scene. Now they fall in love. Now what needs to happen is going to happen. Now the exciting part is taking place because Jesus finally declares the hour has come. This week that he was about to celebrate, that he was about to go through, this holy week that we look forward to was the week that Jesus lived for. His whole life, the whole plan from eternity has been brought down to this moment. And Jesus declares, this is the time, the hour has come. Again, it's hard to imagine what this must have felt like. We know as we read scripture that Jesus had a desire to always do the Father's will. This was his desire always. But if you look at John 12, verse 27, we see that he's troubled even in this moment. I mean, look what he says. Now, my, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Jesus says, no, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And so at this moment, Jesus, oftentimes when we think about Jesus trembling, we think of the garden. We think of the scene in the garden where he's praying, and it says he sweats drops of blood. We, we think about that moment, but it didn't start there. Already at this time, his soul is troubled within him because he, know what, he knows what's about to take place. And so we see the humanity of Christ in this. The hurting, the pain. For 30-some years, Jesus would walk this earth with one goal in mind. And now that moment is less than a week away. So for 30-some years, he's walking around doing all of this different stuff, and pretty soon, the whole reason he is alive is to die. And there it stares him in the face just a few days away. Jesus didn't come to this earth to perform miracles and heal people. He didn't come to this earth even to just teach. He didn't come to the earth to have camaraderie with some friends, a group of friends that he would call his disciples and have his little inner circle these aren't the reasons that Jesus came to this earth. We like to read about them, and they're important for us to read and to know and to understand. But all of those things happened for a purpose, and the, the purpose was for him to die. The purpose was Calvary. And Jesus declares out loud, now is the time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul would say, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. This still hangs with us today. The cross still is a stumbling block to many people. That's why we like to latch on to the miracles, the healings, the friendships. Jesus was a friend. We need to be a friend. Look how loving Jesus is to people and he cares for people. Look how he, he sat with the woman at the well from Samaria. He sat and had a conversation. With, look, look at how much Jesus loves women and gives worth to women. While we could talk about all of these different things and there's a reason they are in scripture, we have to know and understand that when Jesus talks about the hour has not yet come, he still made water into wine. 
When he tells his brothers and stuff, the hour has not yet come. I'm not going to the Feast of Booths. And then you keep reading. What does he do? He walks to the Feast of Booths. Why? Because it's not about that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What we are talking about, when we talk about Jesus' hour has come, what is the whole purpose of his life? The whole purpose of his life is to die on a cross for sins. And he has finally declared, the hour has come. The plan before the beginning of time, the culminating point of all of history is being wrapped up in what Jesus is saying right now, it is happening. The hour has come. For those of us today who've been saved by his grace, we're thankful that the hour has come. We're thankful that we get to look back and have his word and to know that this has happened in history. It's a historical fact that has happened and took place and that our sins can be forgiven because the hour has come. And Jesus goes through with it, as we'll talk about all through this, all through this week. But I think it begs the question for some of us this morning who haven't trusted in Christ. We haven't by faith received this gift that was talked about this morning in the testimonies that Pastor Scott shared. The question I think, the hour has come. What do we wait for? What do you wait for? Is it pride? Is it to get your life settled before you can come to Christ? We we can have all these things, but I, I want to tell you this morning, the hour has come. You, you don't need to wait any longer. You don't need to earn the gift of salvation that Jesus brings because Jesus paid the price for you on the cross. He, like I said, he goes through with it. We're not going to get to it this morning, but he goes through with it and dies, is buried, and raises again. Why? To conquer death for you. And so this morning, maybe the hour has come for you to trust in him, to believe in him, well, Jesus goes on. It doesn't end in that sentence with the hour has come, does it? Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man. The Son of Man. This is a common phrase that Jesus uses throughout the Gospels to describe himself. It's one actually that's pretty debated. You can study it on your own if you want. I'm just going to talk briefly to it. It's also used in the Old Testament for a lot of people who are Old Testament scholars and like to read the Old Testament a lot. Your mind probably goes to the book of Daniel. You think about Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 13, where in Daniel seven thirteen it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. I don't think it's wrong for our minds to go to that. I think it's good. And there's other places, like I said, all throughout the uh, Old Testament where the Son of Man is used. But in its simplest form, the Son of Man means human. I don't know if you're aware of that. But that's what it means. It's the most generic term for human. But yet what we see Jesus doing with this term son of man is causing it to be unique when he describes himself. There seems to be a uniqueness to the way that Jesus uses this over and over again. And the point of it is we need to see that Jesus actually is the unique human. He is the unique human. Again, his humanity is being hit on a lot in this, but it's not just his humanity, but focusing in on his humanity for a moment. When Jesus, when we think about all that Jesus did, we, we talk about how he was sinless and, and perfect and in all things. I think a lot of times we stop, we stop thinking about that when the beatings happen. Like 
He lived a perfect life, and now he can be the perfect sacrifice. But his life didn't end until he said, it is finished on the cross, and then gave up his spirit. You remember that? His life didn't end. And so one of the unique things about Jesus is not only did he live a perfect life up to the beatings, but even during the beatings, his perfection remained. No sin, no malice, no none of that stuff. While he is on the cross, he is still sinless, absolutely perfect in his humanity as he is being crucified and is being beaten and killed. He obeys his father absolutely every step of the way. Charles Spurgeon has a, a quote. It's very short, but I thought it was very good. In describing Jesus and his perfection, even on the cross, he said, the gold was tried in the furnace, but no dross was discovered. Here's just the fact. If I put any of you to the fire, I'm going to find dross. I'm going to find weakness. I'm going to find sin. Our culture is actually doing that really good for us now with all of our celebrities and politicians. They're digging up dirt on everybody and saying, you're out, aren't they? And guess what? They can do that, but we can do that with everybody. We can find sin in everybody, but yet not in Jesus, not in the unique son of man, because even on the cross, no imperfections bubbled up from the burning of the gold. There was no skimming off the top, those imperfections, the dirt or whatever might have got in there. There's no skimming off the top of Jesus. What we see in his beatings, what we see in his crucifixion, which some people talk about all the time, we see perfection being beaten. We see perfection being sacrificed. Jesus obeyed his father every step of the way, even on the cross. And this is what made him the perfect sacrifice. This is what made him be the only one who could be the sacrifice for you and for me in humanity is Jesus because he was perfect in it. But when Jesus used the son of man, he's not just talking about his humanity. He's also pointing us to his divinity. And this was understood by the Jewish people because if you notice you might say, Tim, how are you getting that? I, I don't see how you see this in this context. If you go to chapter 12, look at verse 34. Jesus talks about the Son of Man, talks about all this, and look at what the crowd does. Verse 34. It says, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So when Jesus uses the term Son of Man, notice what the crowd thinks he's saying. Messiah. Christ, Savior. They are connecting those things together. And Jesus isn't hiding that fact. He is declaring his divinity, and they expected it. When the Christ comes, he's going to be with us forever. Now, some might say that what they're talking about here is the line of David, and that the line of David would be restored, and that would remain forever. But Jesus is talking about something much greater when he is talking about being with the people forever. He's talking about his, not just his humanity and what he is doing, but also his divinity. In the Gospels, we see that when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, that the Son of Man is given the power to forgive sins. The Son of Man is given the power to judge the nations and kingdom. And the fact is, only God can do these things. Only God is able to do this stuff. Jesus actually dealt with it, and this is the last set of scripture I'll have you look at, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 4 through 8. You might remember this story. 
It says, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. See, Jesus is saying, only God can forgive sins, but I am, I am God. I can forgive sins. I'm fully God and I'm, I'm fully man here, fully wrapped up in Christ. And so that's what Jesus is saying when he talks about the son of man, but it doesn't end there, does it, in the, in the verse. Now is the hour for the son of man to be glorified. If Jesus here is referencing the hour as being the cross, then the question is how in the world is that glorifying? We, we glorify it. You guys tell me when I don't turn that light on. I know. I forget and I apologize. It's not that I think anything bad about it. But today it's easy for us to glorify the cross. But when Jesus says this statement, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, again, he's thinking about what he's about to go through. Again, there's been sermons, and I, I, I don't want to preach a sermon like that. I don't want to say I hope I never do. Maybe there'd be a time for it. But you know where people really get into the cross and the hideousness of it and the punishment that Jesus bear, bore. You know, they, they really try to take us to the moment to feel the pain in the side or the, the sword piercing and the water running out. And they talk about all the medical things that happened in those moments, you know, and that's fine. It's good to know that stuff and to, and to study that stuff. We, we've all heard these horror stories. The question, again, that comes to my mind is, in all of that picture, how in the world is that glorifying to Jesus? How, how, how is that his moment to be lifted up and glorified? Why, why would he talk about the cross as a means of glorifying? We wouldn't do that today. We wouldn't talk about death in those terms. And we, we hide death. We, we push it aside. We don't want to have anything to do with it. But yet when Jesus talks about the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, our mind goes to the triumphal entry and says, this is what he means, this moment. He's being praised. Now's the time for the kingdom to come and he's going to sit on the throne. But yet that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the cross. And this is one of the great reversals that God has done. For the world, the cross was punishment for a man who claimed to be God in the end of his reign. That's what the Pharisees wanted. That's what the mob wanted. That's what Pontius Pilate allowed to happen. Right? That's what, that's what was taking place. Look, he is gaining the world. What are we going to do? We'll kill him and shut him up. And then we don't have to worry about him anymore. Just like all those before him who have come and tried to do the same sort of things. We shut them up. We'll shut him up. And this is how we will kill him. And all this will be over. Nobody comes back from death. The leaders of Israel all thought, all thought this, right? They were convinced. They thought that they had saved the world from the plague of Jesus, the false prophet. To them, that cross was victory. But in the great reversal of God, what Jesus was doing on that cross was saving the world. They weren't ending the plague of Jesus. They were bringing the reign of Jesus to the forefront, enabling Gentiles like you and me to be drawn to him. Why? Because they put him to that cross. 
In fact, they thought they put him to the cross, not knowing that he obediently followed his father's will to the cross. And so we see Jesus on that cross bear the wrath of God, being the sacrifice that we need for our sins. When the world thought they were destroying him, they were actually accomplishing his plan in this great reversal. But also Satan. Satan at this moment, thinking that getting Jesus on the cross would be what would elevate him to reign for all time. Getting Jesus on the cross and seeing him killed would change everything in the pecking order of the spiritual realities. And so as Satan no doubt saw what was happening on the cross and saw where all of this was playing out throughout the week, and then finally to see him on the cross, there's no doubt that Satan believed victory was his, that this cosmic battle for all time, he had finally won because Jesus was God's son, and he knew it, but Satan had just had him killed. But again, in a great reversal, we see that on the cross is where Jesus defeats Satan once and for all, that no longer we as followers of Christ, we who've been saved by his grace, we have no need to fear Satan anymore. In fact, the greatest weapon that Satan has had is death. And we don't have to fear that anymore as Christians because we know and we, we, we are told in God's word that when we die, we just spend eternity with him in glory forever. No more pain, no more suffering, no more struggles, no more trouble, no more sin. And so what Satan saw as his greatest accomplishment to bring everybody down to his level, Jesus used to bring us up to his level because we couldn't get out of Satan's level. So Jesus rose up on that cross, and now we can be saved because of that. Jesus opens the door for people, as I said, of every race, every tongue, every tribe to experience his forgiveness because of his sacrifice on the cross. Look at John chapter 12, verse 24. This really was the verse I was going to focus on first. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is how we know when Jesus talks about my hour has come, what he's pointing to is the cross. Because he's obviously talking about himself here, that he needs to die. And that if he dies, then it will bear much fruit. And he uses this analogy of, of farming, which some of you probably know way better than me. But when you take a seed and you plant it in the ground, that's what it does. It dies, right? It starts to, I don't, I don't want to say mold, but it starts to fall apart. But out of that, what God has designed is out of that, life springs forth. And out of that one little seed that you might put in the ground, you get an abundance of fruit that comes from it. And so Jesus is using this simple analogy to talk about his death, pointing to the fact that he is the grain of wheat and that by his death, life can come. And so when we ask the question, how can Jesus say that the cross is what will glorify him? This is how. He's saying, by my death, is when fruit will come. It is by my death that the church will be established. It is only by my death that this can happen and that this can take place. 
And so then for those of us this morning who've been saved by his grace, we are this fruit. You couldn't be that without his death. But this morning, we hang as a tomato on the vine of Jesus and nothing else, not of MNBC, not of some pastor, not of the person who maybe even had the privilege of leading you to Christ. We hang as the fruit because Jesus died. We hang on his plant. He is the vine. And we're that fruit that brings glory to him. That's why we've been talking so much about reflecting glory to him, living our life to his glory, glorifying him in everything we say and everything we do, not just thinking that you have to be a missionary. I I see the cooks back there. They're missionaries in Papua New Guinea. That's great, but not to burst their bubble. They don't glorify God any more than you do when you're a faithful Christian at Ford on the assembly line putting in the thousandth bolt for the day. We all bring glory to God being faithful to him and understanding I'm found in him and him alone. And it's because of the cross. Verse 23 of John is no small thing. When Jesus finally declares for the very first time, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It is because of this statement that all of history balances. It really is in this statement and what he is about to do on the cross that eternity balances. Do you believe in what Jesus accomplished on the cross in his death, his burial, and his resurrection? Or do you not? Eternity hangs in the balance. That's, that's why Pastor Scott up there asks, he only asks two questions. Right? He only asks two questions, and they are very simple questions. But that is what our faith hangs on. Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe he's the Savior? Yes. Do you believe he rose again and conquered death, hell, and the grave? Yes, I do. Then you believe the gospel. Then the Bible tells us that by faith, you've, you're his. And now live to glorify him. It's good news that the hour has come. This week, as you go about your business, as you do whatever it is you do, I do hope that you think about the fact that a little over 2,000 years ago, this was Jesus' last week walking on this earth before his death. I want you to contemplate that. I hope that you'll reflect on that. I hope that you'll be blessed by his obedience to his Father all the way to the cross. Let's bow together. Let's pray. Matt's going to come and lead us in a song in a moment for you to respond to God's word however you see fit. Some like to come here and pray. You can do that if you'd like. Pray where you are. But I trust that you'll respond to God's word how you should this morning. God, I'm thankful today that the hour has come. What the saints of the Old Testament had waited for thousands of years what the disciples had wondered about each time Jesus would say, the hour has not yet come. No doubt they had to be just baffled by that, thinking, why wait? Go now. Establish the kingdom now. But Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. But to think that at this moment, when we read this passage, Jesus says, the hour has come. God, I'm thankful that the hour came. I can't imagine what it meant for Jesus can't imagine the suffering and the pain that he would experience in that week. 
But God, I am thankful that as the Son of Man, he did that, and he did that for me. I could not do that. I could not take the beatings without sin. I could not be nailed to a cross without sinning. I could not do any of that, but yet, God, I am thankful that Jesus was faithful to you, his Father, all the way to death, that he was perfect in all things, and that because of that, I can be forgiven. My sins can be forgiven because of his perfection and his sacrifice on that cross. God, if there's anybody here this morning who's never trusted by faith in Jesus, I pray that they would. I pray that they wouldn't wait. I know there are some here this morning and they think, I'll wait till I get married and have kids and settle down and then then it'll be more real. God, we don't know what tomorrow holds. No idea. God, there's people who maybe have other thoughts, other things. If I, I just need to have this question answered or I need this or I need to pretty myself up first to God and then, then I'll come. God, I pray that you'd open their eyes to the truth that that will never happen. It'll never happen. They cannot do that. God, I pray that they would see Jesus is the answer for their salvation and forgiveness of their sins. God, we trust that you'll do that work even this morning. God, as we get ready to sing this song to you, I pray that we would praise you in it. I pray that we would glorify you in it and honor you in it with the words, with our voices. We sing this to you. We praise you. We honor you. And we do this through Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.